Welcome to CAE Pilot Podcast, a podcast that brings together aviation professionals to discuss life as a pilot, training, and career advice. You can find us at cae.com forward slash CAE Pilot dash podcast or subscribe to our show on your audio podcasting platform of choice. You can also find our video podcast on our YouTube channel. Welcome to this edition of the CAE Pilot Podcast. My name is Patrick Botter, and I'm thrilled to have you with us today. We are still on our quest for dream flying jobs. And today we're going to talk to Ryan Farron, who is a missionary pilot in Papua New Guinea. Ryan, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for having me here. I really appreciate it. We always start off by asking people how they developed their love of flying. So what was it for you that really made you get the bug? Well, I lived here in Papua New Guinea as a kid for four years, um, starting in first grade. So I had the opportunity to go out to some of the bush locations that I'm actually flying to now um, when I was in first grade. And even back then, I was like, wow, this would be the coolest job ever. So really from a young age, probably eight or nine years old, whatever, now maybe less than that, probably six or seven years old. Uh, I thought, man, aviation is going to be the job that I want to do when I grow up, for sure. In Papua New Guinea, um, getting around by airplane is a necessity. Yeah, um, they have basically one major highway that goes through Papua New Guinea, um, for the most part. And everything else is a couple of dirt roads, but for the majority of everything, it's aviation, either helicopter or uh, fixed wing. And so you, you know at a very young age you want to get into flying. Well, where did you train? How did you go about uh, getting yourself ready to fly? Yeah, um, right out of high school, um, age 19, uh, I lived in Michigan, and I went to a community college up there, got my uh, private certificate that same year, and... I flew for like a year, a year and a half, just kind of with friends and catching the sunset, kind of flying. And I knew I wanted to do this, but at the same time, it was actually kind of boring. Without a purpose behind your, your flying, it was just kind of like wasting money and all your friends are having their fun snowboarding trips and you're spending all of your money <laughs> on <laughs> flying. But, um, and then I, st- I stopped flying for, I think, five to six years, actually, and then up in Oklahoma, um, Tulsa, Oklahoma. And so you had this break. What did you do during the break? During the break, um, I actually consider, I, at the time I was thinking, oh, this isn't what I actually want to do. It's too boring just flying around with nothing. And um, I knew I wanted to do missions. So I, uh, we met at the Bible school in Mission, Michigan. And um, that's what our goal was. We were originally going to be tribal church planters. And during those five years, we went through all the training and then through the training, we realized, wow, this really isn't what my gifts and abilities are. It's not in <laughs> preaching. It's not in teaching. It's not in language learning. I want to be a part of that, but that's not really where my gifting is. I really like hands-on things. So that's, that's at that point, we decided we, maybe we should go back into aviation. And I'm glad I did. And maybe it would be a good time just for you to tell us a little bit, because people might not be you know, know what missionary work is. So maybe it might just be cool to just give us a little bit of a a brief explanation of what exactly it entails. For sure. Um, I would say every organization is different in like their mission statement and what they're trying to accomplish. So we fly 
their supplies for them. We fly their kids out to school. We fly medical flights for them as well as the the citizens of PNG. We fly supplies. They do um, some humanitarian as well, like building aid posts and things like that. So we fly all the supplies for that. So really, that's I would say ninety seven to eight percent of my flights are geared around missionaries rather than just kind of humanitarian work. And um, you're really, so you're really the lifeline. Yeah, really. There's no other way to get out of a lot of these places unless it would be a few week hike for some of our furthest locations away from anything. Wow. That's amazing. I mean, very few people can think of like a place that rural, right? Especially in North America. Yeah. So just to give you perspective for every one full day's worth of hiking is only a four minute flight in an airplane. So it really is critical for these people to have aviation available to them. Wow. That's, uh, that's quite the comparison. So now many people will have heard of Papua New Guinea, but not be particularly familiar with it, especially from a flying perspective. So what's the environment like in terms of terrain, weather, um, airports, infrastructure? Well, PNG, um, for most people, they actually think it's in Africa. It's actually right above Australia, for starters. Um, it's an island that's split in half with Indonesia as well. And it's about the size of California, to give a perspective on the size of it. So it goes all the way from sea level. Our highest mountain is just shy of 15,000 feet. And so we fly the whole country. So we fly the mainland all the way over into the islands as well. So it's very mountainous rugged terrain um it's actually crazy to to find villages as far out and remote as they are but uh it's a beautiful country i mean there's there's not you never get bored of looking out the window and exploring and just seeing new waterfalls and new villages and everything it's just a really really beautiful country but very very rugged um and very unforgiving and in terms of um Airports, I guess there's not uh, a ton of infrastructure from that perspective. Uh, no, for sure not. Um, I would say there is roughly like 10, 10 bigger, maybe 12 bigger, I'd say bigger. I was like equivalent to maybe like a class D airspace um, airports. And we have one, two, two different ones with like uh, radar services kind of more or less um and everything else is just like a grass runway on the side of a mountain and i think we have i think um i heard once it's something like over 300 of them in country so there's a lot a lot of grass runways i must make some for some interesting flying for sure yeah a lot of them aren't open anymore um i think back in like the like the 60s through the 80s is when a lot of them were used. So there's a lot of closed ones, but they're still out there. But there's still a lot of well over 100 of them that I'm guessing probably even 200 of them that are still open and being used today. Wow. And what are the people of Papua New Guinea like? Um, they, let's see, how would I put this? I imagine... Um, um, because like, when you talk about people being so far away, I guess my thinking is that there are some people who are just living the way they did hundreds of years ago almost. Yeah. So the PNG people, they're 
they don't change a lot with their culture. Like the culture stays the same, it seems. Um, there's over 800 languages just in Papua New Guinea alone. So just wow. in my one little tiny valley, which is maybe 20 square miles, there's seven completely different languages. And they're not just different dialects, like completely different languages. And I mean, just, I mean, across the street, a quarter mile away is one. Two miles down the street is another one. Three miles up the road is a completely different one. So um, just in the past probably 50 to 100 years, I think, is they're able to have a trade language and start you know, around the country. But before then, they didn't move around. So they were kept with their own culture. They didn't know of the rest of the world. Many, many people, I would say the majority of people in Papua New Guinea are still living in you know, a grass hut or some form or another of that type of environment and it's very similar to like camping out your whole life it's a very harsh environment and a very hard life it's uh and the culture must be very rich i'm just sort of looking at your background a little bit and it makes me feel like it's uh, a culture a rich culture yeah it it is a very rich culture and it has um a lot of different aspects to it because of the so many different languages there's so many like microcultures in that and their beliefs and everything. It's, it's, yeah, it's very diverse. <laughs> How does your flight department work? I guess like we, we operate as a 135 operator um, for some of our work and then part 91 as some of our work. It's kind of odd how it is, but uh, we have three Kodiaks right now. And we have one helicopter, so we're at, it's a long ranger helicopter. We're getting rid of that and transitioning over to a Robinson R sixty six, and we'll have three of those within the next year to year and a half. So most of our flying, I would probably say seventy percent of our flying at the time is fixed wing in the Kodiak, but I would say probably over the next five years, it's going to probably flip flop to where it's probably sixty to seventy percent helicopter and maybe thirty percent airplane. Because most of our missionaries these days are going into helicopter locations, they've gone in. I mean, I think we've been here. This mission has been here for close to fifty or more, and they've they've gone to a lot of the that are easier to get to that have airstrips. People used to build airstrips all the time, but now the newer missionaries they don't want to spend two and a half years building an airstrip. They want to be able to move in, build a landing pad in a week, and be ready to go. So that's kind of the the transition that we're going right now. I guess helicopters are super agile in terms of where you can go. Yeah, for sure. I actually am going to be starting helicopter training um, in about another year and a few months. And then I'll, once I get that, then I'll just be flip-flopping back and forth depending on the schedule between the helicopter or the Kodiak. Oh, so you're going to end up flying both. That's, uh, yeah. that's, gonna, that's cool. Yeah, I'm excited about it. It yeah. should be a lot of fun. And we, um, I don't know if we mentioned it, but obviously you grew up in the States. You grew up a little bit everywhere, but you, you're from the States. And what was it like to transition from flying in the States, which I mean, for the most part is uh, quite urban and, you know, airports everywhere to flying, you know, basically bush flying? Kind of almost kind of feel and refer to as like maybe flying in like the 1930s or 40s, you know, where there there's the regulations but it's really up to you to like you know save your own skin kind of thing like you um 
they don't have as many as control. Like the ATC is there, but it's more just flight following. Like they're not, they're telling you what to do, where to go. You're not on, you know, an IFR flight plan where you're flying specific routes and stuff. It's like you file your IFR flight plan, but now it's up to you to keep yourself safe and not run into a mountain through a cloud or something. <laughs> so um, I really enjoy it. I enjoy the fact that I like the responsibility of the fact that I'm single pilot and all that. So I really enjoy that aspect of it, but it is a lot more of a workload in the respect of you keeping yourself safe rather than relying on maybe ATC in the States to let you know where the other airplanes are. And and I guess for a single pilot, you know, you don't have a co-pilot to not rely on, but you don't have that, uh, that second yeah, person with their eyes. Of. Exactly. So how, how does that factor into decision-making and, you know, on a day-to-day basis? Um, a lot, actually. Um, one of the pilots here and I are working and building this training curriculum right now for new pilots coming in. And this was probably the main focus that we want to focus on with our new pilots is it's not the, not the skill involved in being able to land at a bush location on the side of a mountain. Like That's not really the main focus that we want to that's not what we consider as a good pilot, but it's the decision-making that makes them a good pilot. Um, are they, are they thinking big picture and thinking of all the different options and things that they have to think through to keep them and their passengers safe? I definitely think that it, it can get very busy, bad weather into the flying mix. Um, and you're trying to either get out of a bush location or getting into a bush location, you just have a lot to think about. It's not just a matter of, hey, I want to get down in this valley underneath these, this cloud layer, and then I'm going to land. It's like, how fast are the clouds coming in? Do I have enough time to actually land, unload my cargo, potentially pick up my cargo load that I want to get out of here, things like that. So yeah, there's definitely a lot to think about. Um, and you can't bounce something off with a co-pilot. So it's you're bouncing it off with yourself the whole time and hoping that you're correct. It sounds like an adventure every time you leave, really, because you're talking about this mountainous uh, terrain and unforgiving, and now you know you've got to have heightened situational awareness. You don't have someone you can turn to. It sounds like you really have to be on your game all the time. You really do. And um, I would say probably the first year and a half of flying here solo, it was it was very stressful um, because um, I just didn't have the knowledge that I have now available to me. Like, let's say it's bad weather in front of me. What are my options to get around it safely rather than having to go through it? And now that I've flown here for, I don't know, 1,500 or so thereabouts, I have a broader picture options. So if the weather's bad here, I know that it's always bad in the afternoon in this section. I have two other options that I can go to get around it that I'm almost for sure is going to be okay. But at the, you know, the first year and a half, I didn't have those other two options. So it was so much more stressful, like not knowing what was going to be in the afternoon, what, what kind of weather should I expect? And also we didn't have some of the tools that we have for weather forecasting back then that we have mm-hmm. available to us now, which has really helped us be able to plan plan your day of flying and preparing like should I do a dawn tomorrow or should I leave at my normal eight o'clock to be able to get back before the weather builds so the value of experience I guess is uh, 
Yeah. The other thing that's interesting, obviously, is if you're a single pilot and now you're going to all these uh, very remote locations, you end up being everything, right? Aircraft mechanic, loadmaster, dispatcher, everything all at once. What's that? Well, we like? have, uh, thankfully, we have an awesome crew of mechanics that work on the plane. Um, there's no way we could keep up with the schedule that we have if we didn't. So I'm very, very thankful of that. Um, We've got a ground crew at our home base that will load the plane up in the morning in a flight coordinator that gets everything ready. But then from there on out, the rest of the day, once we've left home base, yeah, we are. We're like the, the load master. I think uh, one day someone had asked me how much I loaded and unloaded, and it was, I think it was close to 8,000 cargo between all the flights during the day that I unloaded and loaded back and forth into the plane. So, yeah, by the end of the day, you're very exhausted, immensely fatigued just from flying. And if you have to add afternoon weather and buildups and potential rainstorms to add to that, yeah, by the end of the day, I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready for the weekend. Some days on Monday. <laughs> <laughs> and what, what do you do if you go mechanical or you have a mechanical issue when you're, you know, at one of these remote locations? Um, the other, the only option really is to fly a mechanic out in another aircraft, which we haven't had to do in a bush location before, really. Um, and I've only had, I've had to fly out a mechanic to wherever I was, I think twice to fix a broken brake line or something like that. So yeah, it's kind of an inconvenience, but it's nice that we have that availability. Yeah. I mean, especially in, uh, in remote locations, I guess. What is a typical day like? You mentioned, you know, you know, leaving at 8 a.m., but, you know, how many legs do you do in a day? How does, like, a, run us through a typical day for you? Yeah, um, we start work at around 7 a.m., just before like 6.45, where we leave um, our, our uh, missionary center that we live on, which is about a 15-minute drive into the airport. So we load up all of our cargo here, drive into town, and I'll either have done all my flight planning the day before or I'll start around that morning, depending on how big of a day I have. Um, so usually we try to get airborne by 8 a.m. And I would say the average, the average flight day for me would be anywhere probably three to four and a half hours of actual flight time, whereas the most I would probably get is about six and a half hours of flight time. But those are on like the really, really long days. Right. And I would say for every hour of flying, you have at least an hour of extra work. So if you have a four and a half hour day of flying, it's probably going to be around a nine hour day of actually working. Typically, if it was a four and a half hour flight day, I'd probably have anywhere from to seven landings potentially. Oh, wow. Um, not but I would say probably half of them are at bush locations and other ones are, are kind of main hubs where I pick up cargo to either take out to missionaries or, and then our longer ones are just around to our main hubs. Mm -hmm. So it's, and, it's a busy day. And is it a, like a, a seven day a week kind of operation or I was talking to someone yesterday who fly, who flew in the Maldives and, you know, she, she did sort of a set schedule. And I'm wondering if you do the same thing. We fly Monday. And uh, the only time we'd really fly on the week is that. 
Makes sense. And um, what would you say are some of the, we've talked a lot about the challenges, but you know, what other, what other challenges do you have? Now, my friend Renault here had mentioned, you know, if you're landing in these, these locations, you know, wildlife, et cetera, are there any concerns about that? Are there anything, anything that's so different from flying? Obviously it's different, but you know, things that are just so out of the ordinary. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of the airstrips that we fly into don't don't have fences around them. So anytime you fly over them, you're always you know, I always fly directly over top of them so that the people on the ground can hear that you're there and to know, hey, to get off the airstrip because sometimes they're the soccer field, sometimes they're just the walking path. And a lot of times there's kids playing on it or they're mowing it and there's almost always dogs or chickens on the runway. <laughs> So, um, yeah, that's something that we always have to watch out for. I thankfully haven't hit anything. Uh, when I was taking off or landing, I had a dog walk under my propeller once when I was doing a run up and he got like his ear hit by the prop, but thankfully it didn't do any to the plane. I'm sure it did a little damage to him, but, um, <laughs> he'll only do that once. Yeah, he learned to do it once. Uh, but yeah, we're always watching out for pigs and dogs for takeoff because that could really, really damage a plane pretty quick. So if anybody's seen my videos, they always are. I'm always commenting about grass being cut because even if it's a foot tall, um, I've had dogs just like sleeping on the runway. And as you're coming in, they'll pop their head up, you know, right as you're in the flare and kind of bump the power just to pop right over top of them or something. But (laughs) yeah, I mean, that could, that could easily cause a half a million dollars worth of damage if you smack one of those. Wow. And I guess you're not talking about super long runways. You're probably talking about quite short runways, as a matter of fact. What's that like? Um, and you also I mentioned they were on the side of mountains. So I would say our average airstrip in Papua New Guinea is 1,600 feet long. Um, that would be very, very average. We have shorter ones. I think our shortest one is uh, right around 1,000 feet just over a thousand feet. I think it was like 309 meters long or something. Um, and they average, the ones that we go into average probably around, let's just say a 7% slope, which is a hill. It's not like a hill, but it's a hill. And then our steepest one is a, at the steepest point, it's like a 20% slope, which is a full on, like, it's a very steep. And that's the one that's only a thousand feet long. So you land and you don't have to touch your brakes if you don't want to. And you usually add power to get up the hill so that you don't just tip the plane back because it's that steep. So, But for takeoff, you're committed as soon as you start the roll. As soon as you start the roll, you're committed. Doesn't matter what comes in front of you. You are 100% committed unless you're for sure going to crash. Like there's, yeah, <laughs> just going to continue on no matter what. And I guess there's not really any training for that. It's just... It's just the way it is. No, it, um, it's, it comes back to experience. Yeah, it definitely gets your, it gets your heart rate up. No matter what, <laughs> every time your adrenaline's pumping, even if you've done it 50 times or 100 times, it's still just as adrenaline pumping the first time as it is the, le- the next time. And so what's the scariest moment you've ever had? Uh, the scariest moment, I would say, when I first started flying here, I actually was on loan with MAF, a different organization because they had airplanes and they had check and training pilots, but we were in the process of getting our Kodiaks and we didn't have any check and training pilots. So I went and flew with them for a year 
just so I could start flying and help them out rather than just sitting around. But um, I flew an air van, a GA8 air van, and just a piston turbo aircraft. And the turbo spool on it was very slow. Like it would take seven seconds if you went from idle to full power for it to get full power. And going into a place that's just maybe a 15 minute flight from here has a drop off of about probably 150 to 200 feet down to the river at the base. And I had a downdraft. It has updrafts and downdrafts after your committal point. And what I mean by committal point is after that point, no matter what, you have to land because you don't have enough room or power to be able to maneuver back out of the valley. Right. So after that point, I had updrafts and downdrafts to where basically short, short final had a downdraft and I had full power and I was, I don't know, probably five to six feet above the very end of the, the cliff where I thought I was going to rip my landing gear off. It was that it was that scary. I call those lake shakers to where <laughs> your adrenaline's pumping so much by the time you stop the plane, you just can't stop shaking your legs because <laughs> it was very, very nerve wracking. Like you um, don't believe what's happened until had, it's over. Thankfully, I've only had one of those and that was enough for me to learn. Hey, you know what? Let's just bring our landing point in a minimum of for the runway so that that does not happen again. Right. So you live and you learn. <laughs> And the flip side of that, what's the best moment you've had flying in uh, Papua New Guinea? I have a lot of those. Um, great sunny days. I love flying here. Absolutely love it. It's such a beautiful country to fly through. Like I said, there's so many things to look at. And I love flying and showing my passengers, like my favorite valleys or, you know, the coolest waterfalls. I, I really enjoy that aspect of it. But it's, it is a real country to fly through, a lot better than flying through Oklahoma, which is where I did most of my training. <laughs> well, I was, talking to, uh, I was talking to this pilot yesterday, and she was saying she loves people discovering flying. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, she flies a float plane, so, you know, it's, there's no cockpit door or anything, and I imagine it's the same thing for you. And so they, you, the, people discovering what a pilot really does and I would imagine in what you do, when you have passengers, many of them may never have even been on an airplane before. And that, yeah, must, be, sure. that must be really cool. Yeah. Um, there's a, I mean, just last week I flew out some patients out of a location, PNG citizens that had never been on an airplane. They'd never been on a helicopter. They got a helicopter ride to this airstrip, and then I took them into town. And, yeah, you have to wonder what they're thinking back there going, Man, this is the this is such a huge change. Mountain village and living in a grass hut, and that's what they that's all they know to be able to go into town for the first time, potentially see a car for the first time, sitting in an airplane, like just information overload. I think, but yeah, I I, I think it's cool. One of the reasons why I actually started my channel was because this is an aspect of aviation that I don't think most of the world has any idea of what it's like. And I thought, man, I think people would enjoy seeing P&G in general. Maybe not me fly, but at least P&G and get a different aspect of what it's like. Well, I mean, I'm pretty sure that the view outside of your office window is pretty phenomenal. It is very, very much so. And um, what would you say is the best thing about being a bush pilot? The variety. Uh, it's not just point A to point B every day, even if it is to the exact same 
push location, the weather dictates your route and when you're going to be leaving to go out there. So every single day is completely, completely different, uh, regardless if it is the same location. But I mean, we have just in our airstrips that we go to, I think we have probably over 50 of them that we go to. So and then you add all the different routes that we go to. So it never gets boring. It never gets boring. We often do um, a little bit of Mythbusters um, with the pilots we speak to. So maybe we'll go through some of these and you can let us know if they're myths or not. Bush flying is not for the faint of heart. I have a lot of comments saying, hey, if you had an engine failure, where would you land? And to be honest, some places there is no place to land. Like, yeah, there's sometimes a riverbed, but sometimes it's a jungle canopy. Like those things, I don't even really consider, they're not like, I'm not mulling over them on every one of my flights. I have considerations and I'm thinking, hey, you know, if something were to go wrong, what would I do? But I'm not worrying about it on every one of my flights. So yeah, that's what I tell people. If that, <laughs> if that really bothers you, this is probably not the job that you need to be doing. Um, in order to be a bush pilot, you should be single as it's impossible to have your family follow you. Um, in the, in the mission work that I do, I disagree with that just because, I mean, I have a family here, been married for 16 years. I have three kids, um, base, a center with like 250 other missionaries. So in my context, it works pretty well. Maybe in a different context, it might not work as well in a different country or different setting. It might not work as well, but it's because I can bring my family along. I can be a part of missions that I want to be a part of and get to do what I want to do. And as someone who lived overseas with my family, I mentioned that I lived in South Africa when I was uh, younger. Those family adventures are so cool to discover things together. So I think it's, uh, I think it's great. Well, you, you did it when you were young too, right? Yeah. Transitioning from an airline job to a bush pilot job or vice versa is basically impossible. I wouldn't say it's impossible uh, for sure, because I don't know. What I've found is like flying one airplane to another airplane. Yeah, there's some little differences, but like in general, flying is the same. I would say it might take a little bit of time moving, let's say, the P&G environment back to the United States in the airlines. It'd probably take me a few months of just getting comfortable back on the radios because things are done differently here. The environment that we fly into, I'm not flying into class B airspace all the time and the busyness of that. So it would just take a little bit of adjustment, but I I easily think that it's hundred percent doable for sure. Is that an aspiration of yours eventually? No, not at all. (laughs) I really have, I really have zero desire to fly the airlines. I, in fact, even as a kid, I was like, I just, that just doesn't really interest me that much. I want to, I like what I do. I like flying, hand flying the plane into these places um, on a daily basis. I really enjoy that. So I think the monotony of airline flying, I think would, it'd wear out, it'd get very monotonous after six months for me. And I think too, you said it at the beginning, right? For you, it seems to be about the purpose behind what you're doing as well. Like there's a, there's a oh, big, uh, intrinsic value to it. If I, if I didn't have that purpose, I would not be flying here. I would go do something else. That is literally the only thing that is keeping me in Papua New Guinea is the purpose behind what we're doing. Right. And um, 
the last uh, little myth here. You must have a flawless training record or be the top gun of your class to become a bush pilot. The job's only for the best of the best. That one I would say yes to if I were you. Um, you do have to be on your A game all the time, for sure. And I, like I had said earlier too, is I think it comes down to critical thinking and critical decision-making also on top of it. It's not just a matter of, I mean, I know some people have said, some people have said any monkey could do this. Any monkey could fly and like great weather, blah, 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 fly into these bush locations. But it's all the other things that are added to that, that are going to make a bush pilot, a safe pilot or someone who can just land on a mountain airstrip if it's a good weather day. So yeah, I would say you have to be on your A game and you have good critical thinking skills for sure. And safety consciousness is heightened. Very much so. Yeah. Very Um, much. Closing question for you is this, is, um, you know, the aviation industry right now has been hit hard by COVID, as I'm sure you know. A lot of pilots are either, you know, they're in their training right now and they're thinking, oh, am I really going to get into this industry? And others are looking for their next flying job. Um, You, your path was certainly unconventionally or even stopped for a number of years. Um, what would you say to those pilots right now who are sort of looking at next steps? Myself, I would have to ask, how committed are you? Um, I think there's a lot of people out there that have this pie in the sky kind of thing, like, oh, I'd really like to do that, but like, no, I'm going to do that. <laughs> doesn't matter what it's going to take. doesn't matter all the obstacles along the way, I'm going to figure out a way to do it. And I think those are the people that are going to succeed and the people that are like, oh, yeah, it'd be really fun to be a pilot someday. I don't think that those are the people that are going to to be able to get into the aviation industry. Um, That's how I kind of was for many, many years. It's kind of like, yeah, that's kind of what I want to do. It'll just completely advance way past me so much quicker because they were the type that were like, it doesn't matter what it takes. I'm going to get myself a job and start building those hours as quickly as possible. So I think it's 100% doable, but it's going to probably be a little bit more work on on their own part of making those connections because aviation, it's all about who you know and the connections that you have. That's going to get you your first job, not the fact that you have 1,500 hours and blah, blah, blah. Mm. And it's it's funny that you... I mean, in the bigger sense, um, I keep on going back to the last uh, podcast I did, but it was uh, someone who got their pilot's license in 2008, of course, right at the height of the, the, the recession, and she decided she wanted to fly in the Maldives, and so she bought herself a ticket and went and knocked on doors. And, you know, when you talk about having your purpose, right, so your purpose may have been the missionary piece of it, but her purpose was to fly at all costs, right? Like, she's that person you're describing. So in yeah. my mind, it's sort of like, you know, it's like find your why, right? <laughs> a little bit, like, and then, yeah, and then follow it. It's, uh, it's neat because you've got a very interesting, um, interesting background. Um, before we close off, you know, give us a plug for your, uh, for your channel. Yeah, so I have a YouTube channel, Missionary Bush Pilot, and I make flight vlogs, just, um, just sharing with you what my flight is. Um, I just talk about what I'm doing. I try to make it as easy to understand for whether someone who's just coming in knowing nothing about aviation, but then also have a technical aspect about it for those who do want a little bit more technical aspect or if they're a 
a flight center at home. So my flights, I share a lot of those kind of details so that people can experience PNG uh, on a broader level. And yeah, experience a little bit of what I get to experience every day. So uh, we'll, we'll invite people to go check you out on YouTube. I put up videos twice a week. So if people are really into this kind of stuff, that I have a lot of content and lots more to come. Missionary Bush Pilot on YouTube. Ryan, thank you so much. Um, it was great to speak to you. I absolutely uh, enjoyed it. And you have a great story. And um, for everybody else, just please go check out um, airside.aero. If you are looking for your next, uh, your next flying job, um, you know, this is the place to check it out. We've got jobs board, resume builder, all sorts of great content, all directed at uh, pilots out there. Thanks again, Ryan. And you know what? Have a great weekend. Have a great Saturday. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. I really do appreciate it. CAE Pilot Podcast is brought to you by CAE, the global leader in training for the civil aviation, defense and security, and healthcare markets. For more information, check out CAE.com.